Hello and welcome to the Society for Acute Medicines podcast. Here we discuss topics, cases and anything new and upcoming in the world of acute medicine. This is our view and take. Remember to always do your own reading around the topics we discuss. Enjoy! Well, hello everybody and welcome to this month's podcast. Um, I'm delighted to say that we've got a, a guest speaker this month in Robin Condliffe, who's, um, I hope he doesn't mind me uh, referring to him as a guru. So Dr. Condliffe is a respiratory consultant based in Sheffield and he has um, been involved with the guidelines for the outpatient management PE and then just published fairly recently has been the audit of the guidelines for the um, outpatient management PE and we're going to touch on that in this podcast. For Damien and I of course um, one of the things before we started the recording this podcast um, one of the big things for us is Dr Condliffe is the author of the paper Management Dilemmas in Acute PE um, which there will be a link to in the show notes and um, we'll touch a little bit on that I, I suspect as we talk about management of those patients who are having peas and sometimes in difficult situations but it's a must for anybody working in, in the acute take to read that paper because it's really helpful and um, so I'm sure we'll touch on that. And I'm joined by one of our regular hosts Damien who's going to help me out here so um, hello Damien. Hi Vic. And hello, and thank you so much for joining us, Robin. No, well, thank you for inviting me. I've been looking forward to it all day. <laughs> Brilliant stuff. Okay, right. So when Damien and I were having a little chat about the, the podcast, we were thinking about um, P is a massive topic and there's so much that we could cover. Um, we, we had a little look at a few papers and it's always interesting when you think, well, I, I know a fair bit about PE, it's our bread and butter as acute physicians, but then reading the NC pod report again, I was looking and, and it, it did shock me really that, that the statistic that for every um, one case of non-fatal PE that we diagnose, there's two and a half cases of fatal PE that we've missed. And that sort of rings true a bit because I always feel like with PE, it's the most sort of over-investigated but then under-diagnosed condition really because we seem to be scanning all these young people on the pill and not finding very many and then yet at post-mortems or mortality meetings it's something that always crops up and then from that obviously followed the the quality standards so I guess I'll probably start with quite a generic question for you then Robin which is if there was one thing that we could do better as clinicians in terms of diagnosing PE what would it be? Diagnosing PE? Mm. I think of lots of things Diagnosing, like yeah, we'll start with, yeah. <laughs> Diagnosing, I mean, that's very difficult, isn't it? Um, because mm. it's, there's a tension between, uh, I think you've, you've sort of alluded to this, a tension between being so paranoid you, 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 you scan every single patient who comes into your emergency room or your department with some breathlessness uh, versus uh, not really bothering about it and, and, and only scanning people who are, who are barned or obvious. So in terms of one thing for, for diagnosis, I suppose it would be to have a, a, a healthy level of suspicion. And you, that can be just your, your general gestalt sort of approach. Uh, you can use, you know, PERC score and things to, to, to identify patients who you think might have PE, but I think it's just being aware of the possibility. Um, the things that can masquerade as PE, some patients have come in with a bit of a change on an X-ray, but not really coughing anything up, not really got any 
fever and, and, and it gets called a chest, it gets called an pneumonia and it was actually an infarct. So it's just having a the, the, the correct level of suspicion, I think. And then go on, we, you sort of said about uh, treating, what would be your your things that we should do, be doing better in terms of treatment? And... Treatment, acute PE still kills a lot of people and not all that is avoidable, but some some deaths in acute PE are definitely avoidable. So it's it's okay. um, watching the patient, it's assessing the patient properly to identify those patients who really might benefit from reperfusion therapy, and going ahead and doing it. You know, we come across patients who've who've clearly had significant PE and have been sort of sat on, or the person's you know trying to come up with a reason not to not to thrombolize them, for example, and and then the patient dies and it's too you know then it's too late to do anything. So. I think it's, you know, for the for us as physicians, it, it's it's managing those sick patients. I mean, you you know, on a population basis, you could say, well, treating lots of patients and getting them out, get, getting the low risk patients out and managing the community is better for hospital beds and better for the patient, and that's true. But I think uh, the patients you remember, those ones who you either did thrombolize them or did something else. Uh, and you made a big difference, or the ones who've slipped through the net and and uh, and it's too late before before people cotton on as to how sick they are. So I think it's 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 having a good insight into how sick or unsick that patient is. Yeah. So I might jump around a bit, which Damien might kill me for. <laughs> we had a lovely plan, but but we that did, that was one of the <laughs> that was one of the first things that I sort of wrote down was when you're doing these sort of podcasts you always think about a patient that you've seen recently and you're you're sort of thinking oh could I could we have done anything better and so this this one I'm thinking of recently was a sort of a chap in his 50s who'd come in and and when he'd come in he'd been hypotensive tachycardic not particularly hypoxic and the diagnosis wasn't thought about straight away by the time he had the CTPA it showed massive PE his troponin was elevated but by the time I saw him, everything was beginning to normalise. Like his blood pressure was completely fine. He's one of those patients that, you know, you're worried that if the bed managers do a trawl around the hospital, they're going to point at him and say, what's he doing in hospital? He's not on any oxygen or anything and he looks absolutely fine. And and I suppose that got me thinking then, especially on AMU where patients are only meant to be for 24 hours, they are staying longer at the moment. By the time I got to him, I was thinking initially, well, he needs to be in a higher care area. But he's actually starting to get a lot better now. And I think the window of opportunities passed. But I thought, well, actually, I don't really know how long I need to observe this guy for and the sort of criteria to discharge. So I repeated his troponin and that reassuringly had come right down. But what, what sort of parameters do you use in that situation? Well, I think it comes down to this whole idea of risk stratification and the one table that you need in your mind in dealing with PE is from the ESC guidelines, the 2019 guidelines, the traffic light sort of table, which has the low, the intermediate and the high. And, the, and clearly the high risk of those patients who've, who are cardiovascularly uh, unstable. And that's normally defined by not, blood pressure of less than 90 over 60, isn't it? So they're, they're straightforward, aren't they? The ones who stay low, come in low, stay low, well, you're going to thrombolize them unless there's a, a significant contraindication. And then... Um, but the much larger group of patients are those intermediate risk patients, and and, and they vary quite a lot, which is why the, the most recent guidelines split the intermediate group, uh, or what the Americans would call a submassive, 
into those intermediate high and intermediate low. So the intermediate uh, lower patients who've got either no RV dysfunction, and you can look at that, just look on the CTPA everyone's had, and if the RV is smaller than the LV, and just scroll through, you do it yourself, just scroll through uh, and measure the, uh, the internal diameter of the RV at its widest point and the LV at its widest point. And if the RV is bigger than the LV, and especially if it's like one and a half times bigger, then that's significantly dilated. Um, if they've got not got that, and uh, sorry, if they've if they've got neither that or a troponin, or they've only got one of each, then they're low risk. And those patients were intermediate low risk, and they their mortality is not that much higher than those patients who are low risk, and they're the ones who you, you can very comfortably just anticoagulate. Then you've got the intermediate high risk, and, and they're defined by an RV or a troponin. But again, that's quite a broad church because you have patients who've just got that and look absolutely fine, and your bed manager wants to kick them out. Or you've got patients who've got lots of additional adverse features. And they're the thing to look out for in terms of trying to figure out what you do with these patients. And those features can be things such as a lactate, and that's really helpful. The presence of a DVT, tachycardia, so if the heart rate's above 110 or something, or the requirement for oxygen, you know, if you're on 35% oxygen. So if you've got someone who's got on 35% oxygen, got a heart rate of 120, a blood pressure of 91 over 60, they are almost high risk you know if the blood pressure fell by one one millimeter mercury or two millimeters mercury they'd be high risk and we should be looking at those in a very different manner to those patients who've got a bit of a dilated rv and a mild elevated troponin but look look entirely well with you know with no tachycardia and no saturation looking very well and they're very different and i'm sure the next the next the next uh, esc guidelines you would have thought would identify would split this group further into those patients who've got Intermediate high with just with, with lots of with additional adverse features versus those who've just got into intermediate high. In answer to your question, so that your patient obviously was not very well when they were at home. By the time they had some anticoagulation, because we know we know from studies looking at um, percutaneous techniques, you really don't have to open very much up to offload the RV. So because people die because of RV dysfunction because of increased afterload, and if you can just open up. A, a relatively small amount of pulmonary arterial flow, then that's that's often enough just to improve the RV so the patient no longer is at risk of dying. That sounds like that's what's happened with you. There was a study yeah. looking at the PESI score, you know the PESI score, yeah. uh, the PESI 48, which is uh, so the, the, the pulmonary embolism severity index, which, which, which incorporates things you can't change like the age, things you can't change like comorbidities, respiratory disease or cancer, uh, things that can change, uh, heart rate saturations and uh, not surprisingly patients who came in with quite a high PESI who at 48 hours the PESI 48 hours once that had normalized to low or very low risk they were extremely uh, uh, unlikely to come to any harm so if you if your patient and that's what you've done really haven't you you've re-risk stratified them with a troponin you could just do a PESI and say well the heart rate's come down uh, you know they're not on oxygen and uh, and you might find they're in a low risk especially if they're not particularly old so I mean uh, so so I think reassessing them at 24 hours, 48 hours, and if, if it's come back to normal, then they've clearly their risk uh, risk state has changed. And, and, and uh, so I don't think you're doing the wrong thing. That patient, I don't think, needed uh, sort of critical care. It'd be very hard to get them in our critical care. Certainly, you have to be half dead before yeah, yeah. you go into critical yeah. care. I'll jump in there because when we were talking about PESI scores, um, so obviously we use PESI score a lot for deciding if patients can have outpatient management. Um, but is am I right in believing that um PESI scores were made or it came about from 
inpatients rather than from an outpatient yeah. management. There's like 15,000 inpatients. And uh, they looked at um, your 30-day mortality or significant morbidity, and that tends to be requiring uh, requiring thrombolysis or require or arresting or leaving ITU. And yeah, I mean the thing about PESI, it's five five different scores. So that one and two are low or very low, and they're the ones who have a mortality of less than one percent or round about there, who who are a 30-day mortality or or significant morbidity, and they're fine to go home. But the, the risk goes up as you as you, you'd expect three, four, and five. So you know patients at risk of uh, with a PESI of five have a um, a risk of significant harm of well in in excess of twenty five percent. So um, so yeah, so it's shown it's it's a very useful tool in that respect because it, it again it show, it identifies those patients who you should be considering for low risk, and that's one of the things we looked at in the quality standards. But it also identifies those patients who are at higher risk. So you can put your PESI score together with your or those other adverse features. One of the things about PESI versus simplified PESI, because there's two, as always, there's two sort of competing things. And the simplified PESI is like the Ron seal of the PESI. It says what it does on the tin. It's a simplified <laughs> form of the PESI score. And and um, and it, it looked at the five, no, the six most important parameters from the PESI score. And uh, you've got to have none of them to be low risk. Uh, everything else, you've just got one. It's quite good in one way because if you're if you're thirty and you come in with a big PE, you can still be low risk on the PESI score because you you score a point for every age. So if you're ninety, you're, you'll never be low or high or very low risk. Mm. But if you're thirty, you could you could be thirty and quite tachycardic and quite a lot of oxygen, and you, the PESI score could say you could send you home, which you know would not be a good thing. Whereas a simplified PESI, uh, you're going to score on something probably, and uh, you probably stay in. So. Uh, Horses, for course, is in the way. I think you, a trust should use one should use a should use a a, um, a, a PESI score or a simplified PESI score. We look we did this in the B. We've just recently audited outpatient management of PE. And before you fall asleep, um, I'll just talk about that. That the eighty percent uh, of trusts say, or eighty percent of departments say, they use a use a, 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 a the risk risk stratified patients. But in reality, it was like a quarter of patients, uh, of fourteen hundred patients in the order, about a quarter had undergone PESI or simplified PESI. So the vast majority had not used it. And even then, the patients who had undergone PESI or simplified PESI, about twenty percent uh, had a score which suggested they shouldn't go home, but they went home anyway. So, uh, so, <laughs> so you know why do it? So I mean, you know, and the NC pod, you know, everything says you should risk stratify. It just it's a reminder to everyone that uh, you'll identify patients you might be able to kick out, but you'll also identify patients who. Uh, you should be treating more carefully and seriously. And when you're talking about that, so I think my experience at the moment, and I'm not sure about Damien's, is when when patients come in, unless they sort of are hemodynamically unstable, uh, even if they're really high risk, they're not going to get thrombolized at the moment. And and from what you were saying earlier, sort of, you, do you think the guidelines will change that for those high risk in the sort of submassive ones that? They are going to end up being suggested. Well, it's all it's all on uh, uh, yes, but I think it's all going to be driven by data. The the, the, mm-hmm. the current biggest study, the, the the biggest study to date is the Patho study, which is used tenecteplase, mm-hmm. not alteplase. It might be different. Five a thousand patients randomised to just uh, lomoclopine or or, or tenecteplase, and they were intermediate risk. If you look at them, the if you look at the study, the 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 average blood pressure was like 110 over 90 or something. It, it, it wasn't, yeah. they weren't borderline. And if you think about it, if you had someone with 91 over 60, you probably wouldn't enroll them in a randomized control study. And that study yeah. was, 
it, it met its endpoint. It was combined endpoint of of what was it seven day mortality and morbidity, and the morbidity was deterioration um, to need thrombolysis or ITU, uh, and it met it, but it didn't meet it on mortality at all. It met it in that if you didn't thrombolyze people, more people would worsen and need thrombolysis essentially. Uh, but there was a bleeding, uh, an excess of bleeding um, events, both intracranial and extracranial. So overall, any improvement in the cardiovascular improvement you got from thrombolysis of these intermediate risk patients was outweighed by the by the bleeding risk. And so various things you mm. can do about that. One is you can use a, a lower risk, a lower dose of thrombolysis. And there have been a few studies, a few randomized, small randomized studies of half dose thrombolysis. Uh, which have one of the things they've not they've not seen a significant improve increase in in bleeding compared with just heparin, and so you can do that. And uh, and currently there's the PATHO three study, so that's a study, a uh, large uh, international study comparing half dose uh, alteplase, so 50, 50 milligrams for most people, but remember that might not be the case if they're very small, but fifty milligrams versus heparin alone. And when that comes out uh, in a in a slightly better selected group of patients so when that comes out that might be a big game changer because it might you yeah you, you, patients may come in who who um are, are those patients have described with adverse features who uh, actually probably do but i wouldn't be surprised if they do benefit mm. then the other thing we can do for these patients is uh, use catheter directed therapies and clearly there's a big move in the u.s to catheter directed therapies now the, the the cynic would say a lot of it's driven financially that people can get a lot of money from doing catheter-directed therapies. And so there's, there's various ways of doing that. There's ECOS, you might come across ECOS, which is a, a catheter you put in and it, it, it pulses a thrombolysis with ultrasound. It's meant to go deeper into the clot. There's also some other techniques. There's one called Flowtriever, which is a big 24 French, big, big uh, catheter, which sucks it out and has no thrombolysis. It still has, can have complications, but no thrombolysis at all. So there are ways of... Of, of reducing the, uh, the, the the bleeding risk. So when there uh, and there's a study called the high pathos study, which is a randomised trial of of low molecular heparin versus ECOS. There's no there's no trial between ECOS and and um, half dose thrombolysis, but we might be able to mm. uh, you know sort of figure which is better. But when those studies mm. come out in the next few years, I think we'll be a lot in a in a, in a much different situation where it might become more much more standard. However, for now, there are patients who come in who I would advise that we we do consider thrombolysis. So those patients who come in, just as I've described, tachycardia on quite a lot of oxygen, big thrombus load, might have a high lactate. I think you can very just very, very reasonably justify thrombolizing those patients. Mm. With half-dose, I would use half-dose thrombolysis. I would uh, fully counsel the patient. I often would get them to sign a consent form. But those patients are the ones who you worry about. And once you've mm. had the half-dose thrombolysis, quite often, a few hours later, they're sitting there Looking happy as Larry. Yeah, and so that's a. I think that's a good approach in a in a in a, in a cash strapped NHS which doesn't have a lot of access to catheter directed therapies. So there, so I, yeah, I fully believe there are patients who come in who, the odd one who dies who we probably were just watching, and sometimes you say, well, I'll just watch them, and if they get worse, uh, we'll thrombolize them, and that's probably fine, as long as people do act. I've come across patients who've. You know, they've come in and the heart rate's going up or the blood pressure's falling and, and that's the sign to do it. And people are still giving them fluid to mm-hmm. try and try not to do it. Yeah. I mean, when uh, you're, you're a lot younger than I am, but when I was a house officer, we used to just, we were thrombolizing all MIs all the time. And 
well, when you're house off, you didn't worry about anything, did you? Because it was not your problem. But <laughs> we used to formalize people, and and you didn't you didn't see lots and lots and lots of problems. Clearly, you do, but you know sometimes the right thing is to do it. Now, clearly, not everyone, and you don't want what you don't want to do is registrar just randomly formalizing everyone. But if you if you have your head about you, you can identify patients who probably have a better chance of survival, a good chance of survival if you thrombolize and where there's a risk they may just arrest if you don't. Yeah. Damien, have you seen many people go for um, thrombectomy at all with PE? No, no, I, I, I haven't. Um, the, the ones that you would think about if you haven't thrombolized them that I've seen, the, the, the risk of bleeding was um, when it was discussed with the different teams outweighed the risk. And I'm guessing when they're getting thrombectomies and um, they need some sort of um, blood thinner with it, um, that that could make it um, prevent it. But also, where where do we get them? Um, where do we go to? Not every hospital obviously has um easy access to thrombectomies mm. or or the different things that robin mentioned about um it's not easily accessible to everybody uh, I, I think it's a very good point thrombectomy can mean various things it can mean a surgeon opening the chest i mean normally when i give a talk i ask has anyone ever managed to get a surgeon to uh, do a surgical embolectomy very occasionally in a big room one person might tentatively put their hand up but most of the time the surgeons will not do it for various reasons I suspect a, a lot of the time they've never they've not done it, and so why would you start doing it an operation you've never done in a very sick patient? And so I think mm. surgical surgical embolectomy or thrombectomy are rare as hen's teeth, but clearly catheter directed thrombectomy has a real role. Uh, we talked about half dose thrombolysis, which is great for many patients, but one of the, the management dilemmas we always have is patients who've got a contraindication, and that can be various things, can't it? It can be someone who blacked out and banged the head. They've not got a subdural, but you're concerned they might get a subdural. And we've seen patients who've developed subdurals after thrombolysis. Or a post-surgical patient just had their spinal surgery and two days later they've got a big PE. Or, horror of horrors, the pregnant, the patient who's just postpartum and uh, and has a big PE. Uh, 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 and, you know, it's cardiovascular and stable. They're the, they're the real, real tricky ones. And they're the ones who, in the UK, we need a good a- answer to. Because they're the ones who catheter therapies for example flow tree which they talked about has no thrombolysis you know you should, you should the patient ideally should be uh, anticoagulated at, around a procedure because most patients who go, undergo flow treva don't have a big contraindication but if you had someone who was um you know had a big pe and a, and a real contraindication anticoagulation well that's fair enough flow treva them and then that's fine you might put a filter in them that's the that's the that's the rare role for a filter is someone you just cannot anticoagulate, uh, and then you could introduce prophylactic low molecular heparin, and when the bleeding's, then you can gradually increase it. So, but there are patients in the UK who die because there's no access to it. Young patients who die, older patients who die, and and and, and NCPod highlighted this that there needs to be a sort of network of access to these procedures, and that's something which which needs to working on in the next few years. And I know mm. the companies are very sort of rolling out because they want to make money, but also they you know companies are in it to, to help as well i think it needs to be done sort of in partnership but ideally you would have a situation where a central teaching i don't like the word teaching hospital i'm not sure we teach more patients more students in a teaching hospital than dgh but call it a teaching hospital but would have the would have the experience have the have the uh, interventionalists who can do these procedures and then patients could be brought in just like happens for uh, 
stemmies with re reperfusion. Um, you know, it happens all the time. Patients travel a, a bit of a distance, blue lighted in, they get their uh, PCI done and they're, they're well, thank you very much. And so that's where we should be heading for. That's what we should be aiming for because we are lagging behind our colleagues in Europe and the States. Mm. Okay. So I'm going to shift back now to what we were supposed to be talking about at the beginning, but I got overexcited by submassive PE. So we obviously do a lot of work in ambulatory care and a sort of outpatient management of the the lower risk PE is is a huge part of ambulatory care. I mean, it's, you know, you're seeing lots and lots of these patients come mm. in and, and this is what this most recent audit looked at. Damien, did anything particularly stand out to you when you were looking at this, uh, something that you wanted to pick out? From from the audit? From the audit, yeah. So, so um, the, the, it's, it's quite a big audit um, and it's, it's, it's clearly, uh, as Vicky says, um, we deal with this quite often at the front door. Um, I'm pretty sure... Yeah, every day that I'm in, in the SDAC area, somebody comes in with a query PE, um, chest pain, shortness of breath, query PE. Um, so it's quite interesting to see the this audit and who does what where. Yes. So it, it's what what I'll jump to is is the the follow up um bit. I know I know we're jumping around, but it seems to be the theme of this. It's um, <laughs> my fault. Sorry. But the the follow up. So firstly, there was a look at the first week follow up, seven day follow up, and then the three monthly follow up. And obviously, I haven't gone through training um, where I'm at. Every, every hospital does a different thing. Different people follow up the seven day and different people follow up in three months. Um, what would your view, Robin, be um, on number one, who should follow up at seven days? Um, and then number two, the three monthly follow up. Who should do that? Yeah, because I think that they're serving different purposes. The seven day follow up is make sure the patient is well improving taking the medication properly and so that's uh, and that's the that, so that's the that's the aim of that because uh, you've got someone you've sent someone home with a potentially you know like you're hoping is not life-threatening it can be life-threatening for the patient or big big diagnosis for the patient especially if they go and google it and i think if you just disappear off into the ether there's a there's a real risk that patients have complications or aren't taking the medications or have just got questions so I think it works really well in our in our unit. They'll see a thrombosis nurse at seven days. Certainly, I think it's ideal for a sort of protocolised nurse specialist approach. And I would have thought most ambulatory, well, clearly ambulatory centres work extremely well with nurse specialists. And many centres will have a VT nurse specialist who's diagnosing the DVTs and 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 can follow these patients up as well. So that's ideal for seven days. It doesn't happen, as you see in that in the audit. It's it's um, the minority of, of patients receive that sort of follow up. The three month follow up is the time when. Uh, oh, sorry, and the other thing that happens at seven days is malignancy screening. So, you know, ten percent of patients with an unprovoked PE have malignancy, and there's various studies have shown over the last decade that you don't need to go doing CTs and scopes on every, you know, the CT abdomens and scopes and this, that, and everyone. But everyone needs some limited screening. Again, that works very well with a protocolised approach because nurses follow protocols and doctors don't. <laughs> and so um, and so in our, in our centre, the VT and nurse will see them in seven days, go through things, make sure they're improved, and then they will take a history uh, regarding bowels, this, that, and the other, dip the urine, 
look at the bloods, look at the calcium, look at the LFTs. The patient's already has CT, which covers the chest and the upper abdomen. And so you, you're going to pick up a lot of things that are going to be there at that point. And they, the, the thing they often pick up is your is blood in the urine, and they end up referring lots of patients to the urologist, but they don't seem to mind. But So that's the seven days. So it's to make sure the patient's improving, taking things, and do that initial limited malignancy screening. If you leave that to three months, you've and it was malignancy, well, three months isn't a good idea. Mm. But the three-month follow-up is two main purposes. One is to to, to clarify what the, the best ongoing anticoagulation uh, approach should be. And in a nutshell, if you've got a strongly provoked PE, so if you've had surgery and you've, then you've developed PE, then your risk of recurrence is very low. So after three months, you can stop anticoagulation, and, and the risk of coming back is very low. If it's a completely unprovoked PE, then, and you're male, for example, then your risk of having a further P in the next three years can be 30%. And so unprovoked Ps, most of the time now, we recommend long-term anticoagulation. And there are nice studies showing that half-dose rivaroxaban, 10 milligrams, or half-dose of pixaban 2.5, are as effective at preventing recurrence after three months, after three to six months of anticoagulation, with a low risk of bleeding. And so that was, that's generally what will happen patients will we'll, we'll, we'll stay on long-term anticoagulation. So that's one of the things that happens at the three-month follow-up. And the other thing that happens is identification of patients who are still breathless. And 30% of people will still be breathless after a PE. About 1% of patients will have chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension, so they've got a significant residual thrombus load causing high pressure. And the other 29% might have some clot or might have become deconditioned or anxious or put on weight. But it's identifying those patients who might benefit from pulmonary rehabilitation or certainly for investigation for a significant residual clot or uh, and pulmonary hypertension. So the joy of doing these podcasts is that I get to learn lots. And the, yes. the, the downside is I get to admit when I'm completely clueless about things, um, which I do far too much. But I didn't know that about a Pixaban, so that, that you go on the lower dose after three months. Yes. So is that yep. is that a new thing, or is that just something I've missed, or probably within the last decade? <laughs> so it's something I've missed. But I just because no, I think five I've, or six years ago. Yeah, because yeah, I think I've seen people who've come to our hospital and said, "Oh, but they were taking too low a dose because they shouldn't have been on two point five. Yeah, yeah. The license I think is six months, but we all do. We sort of do three to six months. Okay. You know, once you've had that initial three or three to six months of anticoagulation, yeah, then um, yeah, the, two, the large as you imagine, P, the, the, the pretty large studies that we showed, yeah. So yeah, ten ten of river or two point five of pixaban is the sort of re- prevention dose once you've had initial treatment, and that's different to the AF dose, so that people, yeah, 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 yeah okay. exactly. And, uh, there's no profile, there's no low dose that works for AF unless you like, yeah, pixaban if you're very if you're old and got dicky kidneys and very small, yeah. yeah. So I'll I'll hold my hand up as well, Vicky. I I actually I I've, I find that out recently about the <laughs> two point five pixaban because I had a patient that came in on it. Um, they had only one one PE. It was either one PE or one DVT, but they're on two point five BD at the pixaban. I was like, why? Why are they on this? And then when I did a bit of reading and looked up the EMC, it 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 says it there. It's 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 in the EMC for um for a pixaban. It's it was all there. Um, so it was all new. It was it was new to me as well. Thanks, Damien. Because these patients, these patients will be on this for years and years. Yeah. Uh, and so you want to reduce the bleeding risk because you don't want to be on a full, you know, yeah. treatment dose anticoagulation yeah. for thirty years. So 
what I so I picked up on exactly the same point with Damien about the seven day follow up. And what was interesting is when we audited this in our trust, we found a huge amount of patients represent after they get discharged. Um, and, and it's usually the ambulatory patients. Mm. And when we looked at it, we weren't giving anybody an information leaflet. They were getting turned around really quickly from ED. So when we were looking at individual cases, it was it was largely exactly like you just said. What's happened is they go home, they Google PE, re- read, you know, life-threatening condition, and then think, oh, I'm still a bit breathless, and it's mm. two days later, and I'm not better. And then they were coming back, and it was largely anxiety-driven. Mm. And and I just can't help but think, you know, certainly for us, that a, a patient information leaflet would have made a huge difference, but also that sort of seven-day assessment sort of explaining what's likely, you know, what you're supposed to be feeling, what's going on, that bit of reassurance would be massive. And the the only follow-up our team got were with the anti-coag team. They didn't get yeah. any with the um with the medics. But it, it's who does that. And it's a tricky one because we'll all sort of sigh if we think that acute medics have to do any more work. But realistically I can't see anybody else with with hot clinics in it in acute medicine departments. That seems to be the the place that naturally they'd go to like you say led by a specialist nurse but certainly in the two hospitals I've worked in recently not neither of them had it do you have a follow-up Damien not yet <laughs> yeah working clearly, on it working clearly, on it. it's clearly something that would be nice to to have um, especially reading all these quality standards yeah and then the the other thing was um the bit about the right ventricular strain being written in the notes and 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 I, I suppose this is something that I'm really keen to get your opinion on because we seem to be obsessed with getting echoes on everyone. And if you've got a patient who's got, you know, either way, they're 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 really well and they've got no troponin rise, no BMP rise, which seems to be the the flavour of the month at the moment, and and they're a normal sort of CT as far as that goes. Or you've got the opposite. You've got somebody with high troponin. Um, obvious strain on their um, uh, CT. Is an echo needed? Does it add anything? No, I mean, I think most echoes in, in PE are not necessary for the, for the exact reasons you said. You know, we, we, we can look at the size of the RV. I mean, the CTPA is a static, it's not, it's not a gated CT, so it's not perfect. Mm-hmm. But if, if the RV is big, it's big. Uh, if it looks very small, mm-hmm. well, it's, it's very unlikely to have significant dysfunction. You're doing a troponin. They're high sensitive troponin, so that's normal. There's no, you know, mm. the, the RV is pretty happy, and you've got the, all the physiological scores. So if your RV looks big and you're banging along 120, well, you know, it's not going to be working properly. Mm. So I think the many many echoes are are pointless. The the only really there's two I think indications for an echo. One is the most important is if you think you've seen thrombus in the right heart. Mm. So if you see a filling defect. Or if the radiologist sees a filling defect, but you should look at these yourself. You might pick things up, and and that happens in about three percent of patients with a sort of submassive PE will have a filling defect. So if you think there's thrombus held up in transit in the right heart, then that is indication for an echo. A to confirm it, because sometimes you can be misled. People often overread. Um, they look at the right atrium. You've got contrast coming into the right atrium from the SVC, so it's all white, and then you've got Blood coming from the IVC with no contrast. And where it mixes, you get things that look a bit like filling defects. So people sometimes over sort of read things. But if you've got a long worm-shaped, so because the thrombus which you get held up in transit in the heart is a long worm-shaped thing because it's come up from the from the femoral vein or whichever vein it's come from. 
if you think it's there, then an echo is really important. So A, to clarify that, and then that might help guide your treatment. Because sometimes these prolapse through a PFO, 20% of us have a PFO. If the right edge pressure goes up, then the PFO can open. And if the thrombus is prolapsing through the PFO, it's a very different kettle of fish. If you were to thrombolize that, then there's significant risk of, of things breaking off and whizzing around the systemic circulation, causing all sorts of mischief. Whereas if it's not, and it's held up in the right heart, well, it's not an indication for thrombolysis, but it, it might be something which is, again, an additional concern that might push you towards thrombolysis if you've got someone where you're, you're, concerned, you're worrying about it. So echoes, number one, is if you've got right heart, if you're suspicious of right heart thrombus. The second is if you think someone might have a chronic picture. So if they come in with a yeah. two-month history of breathlessness, and the PE on the the PE looks different. So normally acute PE is either expansile, it's gone in and it's it's sort of pushing out this in a segmental PE, or it's the polo mint sign where you've got contrast around the outside and a, and a black thrombus in the middle. That's acute PE. Whereas if you've got thrombus towards the edge, around the edge, mural thrombus, not just in the main PA, but sort of looking end on and it's sort of like a crescent, or you've got webs where it's recannulated either side, then that might suggest chronic PE. The, the right ventricle might be hypertrophied and an echo can be very helpful because if you've got a pressure of systolic pressure of 80 millimeters mercury and then this is not all acute PE this is a chronic a chronic picture you can't really produce a pressure of more than 60 millimeters of mercury in an acute setting so it can be helpful if you if you if from the history and from the appearances on the scan you think you consider whether this is chronic PE they're the two main indications I think for echo. Okay. the rest of it the rest of the time, uh, I would leave the cardiologist alone and not bother them. Yeah, so I, I feel justified in cancelling all those echoes now. <laughs> can I can I ask a bit more about the echoes then? Because obviously that's that's on patients when they've come in. Um, I've I've seen um some of the juniors um booking echoes um as they've been told to whenever they're coming back three months time um into some of the respiratory clinics. Does Everybody at three months need an echo. No, or who should? And the, so the ESC, the ESC guidelines suggest uh, and there's a more nuanced approach slightly, but the ESC guidelines suggest patients who remain breathless should be investigated. So that's what. We, so we see everyone in three months. We do a joint clinic with our hematologist colleague, and we see everyone, or near near enough everyone who's had a clot, uh, had a pee. And the patients we will investigate are those patients who, a, firstly, have had a, enough clot to cause significant problems. So if you've had someone with a single subsegmental pee, well, they're not going to develop any chronic problems but someone who's had a reasonable degree of PE if they're breathless then we'll do some tests even if they had a big PE if they're completely back to normal we won't do any tests so it's driven by for us it's driven by symptoms so sort of routine doing anything routine is not is not a good idea so certainly people don't all need them even even patients who've had a quite a big sizable PE if they if they've come back and they're absolutely back to normal we're not going to we're not going to investigate it's good to know Damien, did you have any of the other any other the uh, sort of quality standards or the audit that you wanted to pick out anything from? So no, I think I think we've talked about a few things. So obviously the the big one is getting a CT scan, CTPA, pulmonary angiogram done within twenty four hours. Yeah. Um, was the first quality standard. We've talked about our PESI scores or the Hestia scores, but I think a lot more people use PESI these days. And from from the audit that was done, that seems to be the way PESI or or simplified PESI. Offering outpatient scans to patients that are low risk is fairly straightforward. And then you have mentioned the given information, verbal and written information, and then we've talked about the follow ups. 
And then obviously the the other thing, the the fourth quality statement from the 2020 um, standards was getting a senior clinical decision maker to review before discharge. Which interestingly on the audit, it said 91% of patients were assessed, which I found difficult to believe, like because a lot of those will be middle of the night PE uh, in ED, won't they? But depends how you define a senior comment yeah. a senior <laughs> clinical decision maker. When we when we did the the actual the guidelines a few years ago, there's a quite a lot of you know quite a lot of people with different jobs in the room, and it was there was a lot of politics in how we word this because you really can't say uh, need a senior uh, consultant review or a senior doctor review, no, because that could include nurse specialists who were adequately trained, and so yeah, the definition can be quite wide. It's someone who is either very experienced or deals with P a lot of the time. The whole aim is to make sure that it's not the F1 sending someone, well, F1s can't send anyone home, but F, F2 sending someone home uh, who's actually come in with a pneumothorax or, yeah. you know. Yeah, because they, they audit, it, it says SD3 or fourth in emergency medicine, staff grades, advanced nurse practitioners, clinical nurse specialists, um, that are able to do this role with advice from a consultant, um, if available, or that was available. <laughs> and, and I guess the only other thing that I think we as acute physicians really need to do better on was the, um, and, and I see this happening, is that you, you get somebody and they think, oh, this might be a PE, and then they, they wait either to see a senior, discuss with a senior, or to get a scan, and they just don't think about giving the anticoagulation. Yeah. And and it's the biggest delay, I think, in our trust was waiting to ask that senior yeah. because they're too hesitant to, to go and give this this drug themselves. Yeah. And and it's about encouraging people to either, you know, find us quicker or just, you know, it's one dose of anticoagulation as long as their bleeding risk is not excessive. Yes. I mean, a single dose is, is unlikely to cause, but you just, I suppose the one thing, you know, you always want to, I always worry, the one thing you always want to miss is don't miss a flipping pneumothorax. You know, don't. Yeah. They come in with plastic pain, and someone gives them a, you know, anticoagulates them up, and then you do an, <laughs> then you do a CT and show a been big, big pneumothorax. But uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, so, you know, you don't need to wait for using ease back, and you know, because a single dose. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and every sort of all the guidelines and everything always highlights this as an issue. Not not waiting too long. What's interesting, one of the things just in the audit was, yeah, you know, the BTS thoracic respiratory have done all these bits and bobs uh, gu- guidelines and quality standards but if you look at not surprising i said it was a 97 percent of i think it was of, of of patients who were treated were treated entirely by ed or acute medicine mm. and so the the respiratory physicians who are writing all this stuff we're not seeing we're not managing these uh, outpatient peas which is as you'd expect mm. which means we it's quite good this sort of uh forum because it, the the, the, uh, the message needs to be spread uh not just within our with our own uh, own group of respiratory physicians, but actually the people who are doing the work. You guys are the ones who do the work, obviously. Uh, well, the three people that yeah, the three people that listen to this regularly. I thought it was, <laughs> well, we'll all know the deal. I there. thought this was high, yes, thousands, thousands, thousands. That's what I was told. I was, I thought, <laughs> thousands, yeah, yeah thousands. <laughs> it will be Gro- after this one. Growing every day. <laughs> so, Damien, was there anything else you wanted to ask? No. No, I, I just I, I'll talk about my learning point from this because we have talked about a lot. Um, my my learning point that I've I've taken away from today was was about redoing the PESI score. I've I've, I've yeah I've never actually thought about that, and I, I, I don't know why. It's probably because I in acute medicine we don't see them for for the number of days afterwards. We usually see them at the front door, of the acute stop. But rechecking a PESI score is that was 
So, but I think with, so uh, acute medicine units are now increasingly getting high care areas, Robin. So this might be something that ends up on there because we can do intensive sort of observations on these patients and they would be perfect for this. And, and I think that is something we're going to see more is these patients that we just want to keep a closer eye on. Mm. So for me, it was like, okay, when is the risk passed? And And that is perfect. But it was also the, it is those patients that you just think, Oh, I th- I think they really would benefit from thrombolysis, mm. but their blood pressure hasn't dropped or or it did transiently at the beginning and now it's fine and you're almost sitting waiting for it to drop again. Yeah. But I think using those those other criteria yeah. would certainly that's something that I'm going to go away and really yeah. take from this. I mean, it, I think you've got to explain to the patient well it's not it's not sort of yes. it's not standard, but it certainly you can you you can so justify it if you do it properly. And yeah. um, as you yeah. say, there are people who, who, who will, who will arrest. You know, the plan was to wait. I just see, I've seen this quite a few times where people have, you know, yeah. none. They said we'll do it. We'll do it if something happens, and it happens. And they say, oh, we'll, we'll do it again if something else happens. And, yeah. Uh, I mean, it's understandable if they've if they've got contraindications, and that brings us back to the idea that you need other alternatives because you want patients who, you, you know, you want uh, those patients who've got a. A bleeding problem but i've got a p that otherwise you'd be thrombolizing i'm not talking the high risk peers i'm talking the intermediate high risk with lots of alternative things they're the patients as well who should be undergoing catheter directed yeah. uh, so we need the therapy so we, we need to move things forward yeah. uh, if you think how the mortality of of uh, mi's used to be very very high and the mortality of mi's is now very very low and we, mm. we're nowhere near that uh and the money yeah, and the money get there spent you imagine the money they get spent on on networks of on CCUs and and uh, interventionalists and rotors and uh, and n- nothing you know that doesn't get spent on these at all so it's a bit of a Cinderella subject so yeah but things will change yeah uh, and I, again I echo sort of a it was very nice of you to say I'm not old enough but I totally can old be old enough to remember being on a CCU as the uh, cardiology SHO and the first week was terrifying because you thrombolize people but by the end of the week it was just yeah I'll do that have a, do that and then have a cup of tea but we don't have that anymore people are genuinely scared thrombolysis is massive isn't it because it's just not done very much so therefore people are just a lot more scared of it Lovely. Well, I think we'll sum up there. Now, the, as usual, we will do show notes on this and there's that hugely, amazingly helpful paper that anybody that does the acute take and sees PE should definitely uh, have a read and then know where to find it in time of need. So we'll pop that on there. Then there's also the audit that we'll we'll share and as well as the quality standards and the NCPOD report. So I'll put links to all that in there and also some of the, the PITHO studies as well. Um, I just want to thank you once again, Robin. It's been absolutely brilliant. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for joining me, Damien. Thanks, Vicky. Thank you, Robin. We'll say goodbye. Thanks very much. Thank you for having me. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you all for listening to another episode of the Society for Acute Medicine podcast. We hope this episode has been interesting and helpful for you all. Please do go to the SAM website at www.acutemedicine.org.uk for all things acute medicine, including show notes from today's episode under the education menu. You will also find more info about acute medicine, the team and how to contact us individually. Please do get in touch with us via Twitter using at acutemedpod and let us know what you thought, as well as topics you'd love to see us explore in future episodes, or if you'd like to just get involved. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you join us next time.